Good evening. Welcome to the world tonight. It's January 8th, 2021. I'm Peter. Uh, we're joined with my fellow co-host, Adam. And our first agenda today on the list is the events this week in the U.S., which have felt you know, like 20 years occurring in the U.S. in the past week. Uh, obviously, there was the Georgia runoffs that now people seem to have forgotten actually ever happened. Uh, and the uh, riot at the Capitol building uh, that put, you know, U.S. Uh, put, you know, members of Congress at risk when doing the certification. So we'll start off first with the uh, the Senate Georgia runoff. Uh, you know, this previous on Tuesday, uh, Democrats for the first time uh, since 2000 and, uh, since 2000 won a Senate race in the state of Georgia. Uh, they won uh, the special for uh, for the Senate seat vacated by Senator Johnny Isaacson. That we was run that Senator Left Kelly Leffler was running. She lost to Raphael Warnock, and in the regularly special uh, in the regular election, that had to go to a runoff. That Senator David Perdue missed uh, the 50 uh, requirement. Uh, John Ossoff beat uh, Senator Perdue, uh, which Democrats now you know because of these two wins will take control of the Senate come January 20th uh, when President Vice President Elect Harris is sworn in. This also, of course, you know, means that Democrats will have some powers now on the floor and now makes President Joe Biden's life a little more easier in terms of getting certain things through. Adam, first reactions on the Georgia Senate race. So, yeah, as you, you put out, this is going to ease um, the, the minds of Democrats and specifically um, Joe Biden, because it will you know make their, their job in trying to pass any early legislation for the first two years of a Biden presidency so much easier. And this is so important when you're looking at um, COVID relief. Uh, when you're looking at uh, general economic packages to try and you know really get America um, kickstarted, and then you're also looking towards their more um, sort of electoral reform uh, and, and voting reform um, that uh, Democrats have been wanting to to push um, through through Congress for a while now. So yeah, definitely important there. And then also you just have to think about. Um, the idea, you know, uh, an idea that existed for quite a long time um, with um, Georgia specifically for the Democratic Party was that they recruited, they were, you know, they would always recruit bad candidates. It seemed like mm -hmm. it would be a place where um, bad candidates were found. Um, and still that sort of perception was taken to Warnock um, a few months ago. And same with Ossoff, because neither of them have um, one elected office prior to this. Mm -hmm. um, and even, you know, Ossoff being at the age of, what is it, 33, I believe? 34, sorry. Um, you know, it, it doesn't really seem to be the, the thing for striking leadership, but they've still been able to overcome those perceptions um, mm -hmm. and, and really push through what, to be at my, you know, in my opinion, was quite a surprising win. I, I thought it was going to, um, uh, both um, uh, runoffs would have gone to the Republicans, but I was I was surprised, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I will point, you know, to our other uh, fellow, uh, you know, Elections Daily uh, member uh, who was on the staff, Kratz Kravitz, who wrote about this uh, back in the summertime. The Georgia Democrats should stop being afraid about runoffs if they had a chance. And a lot of what he wrote came true. Republicans you know, did better with college-educated whites and other parts, but Democrats brought out more African-American vote. And also the blunt reality is Republicans, because they ran on the message of stop the steal, you know, didn't bring out a lot of the base they were hoping to bring out. And uh, you know, the map, you know, when you look at it, the Georgia map, a lot of these rural counties Republicans didn't get the numbers they were hoping for. And with a narrow margin uh, at play that, that both races were, one has to argue whether uh, people like Lynn Wood and Sidney Powell pretty much cost Republicans <clears throat> two Senate seats in their Senate majority. 
Yeah, another interesting element to look at is um, uh, the actual ability to to generate um, votes. So, for example, um, with uh, Hispanics, um, both um, candidates were able to increase their their margin with Hispanics by a massive amount. Um, primarily, it seems, because they were engaging with those voters, um, whereas it seems that the actual um, uh, general campaign, that was seemed to be, you know, an afterthought. Um, so it really just shows to, to any sort of um, strategists out there that, that that's maybe the key thing that Democrats cannot just rely upon um, them turning up and instead they have to actively reach out and, and try and win their votes. Yeah. yeah, and I think for, you know, uh, the Georgia Republicans, they've been at war with each other. Uh, the Secretary of State, uh, Brad Rasberger, and the Governor, Brian Kemp, have come under a lot of criticism from Republicans for numerous things, whether the, in their opinion, the handling of the election and post-election. Obviously, uh, it's been very a mess. And now for Republicans, there is the blame game going around. Certain people blame Mitch McConnell. Others blame, as I mentioned, uh, Lynn Wood and Sidney Powell. But as mentioned, you know, Democrats now will have control. And one of the first things that came of this news was that uh, uh, President-elect Biden will be nominating uh, Judge Merrick Garland. Yes, it's correct, folks. Merrick Garland is back. Uh, Just this time as the Attorney General, he's nominated him, which the expectation is that Garland will be confirmed very easily because of his credentials, which now allows Biden to possibly put a, you know, one of his Supreme Court candidates, Judge Jackson of the D.C., you know, court, to the uh, district court, district court, uh, to the D.C. Circuit Court, which would allow her possibly to replace her mentor Stephen Breyer down the road, possibly next year. Yeah, mm-hmm. fantastic. Yeah, I would say fantastic. Look at over there. Um, and is that all you to yeah. want to say on the? Yeah, I think so. I think now we'll move to the other thing, the, the story that's uh, been in the news for, you know, the last forty-eight hours, and that is the, uh, you know, attack on the Capitol by armed thugs, some would say terrorists, I, more of the view they are terrorists, uh, who uh, ransacked the Capitol while the electoral cause certifica- certification was occurring in both chambers. Uh, as these goons broke in uh, into the to both, uh, into the into the Capitol building, which itself is, a, is an alarm bell of concern how uh, DC, how, how the Capitol Police apologies, Capitol Police weren't able to stop them and now we've been you know we've heard from the associated press that cap that capitol police turned down requests for backup from both uh the pentagon and the fbi which is now and you know it raises an, an eyebrow why they turned it down uh and we had you know these thugs come very close to breaking into chambers with members of congress and having of course the president uh the vice president was already under a lot of hot water with, with donald trump over the certification and the speaker of the house both in danger of uh, being attacked by goons. And people were, you know, these senators had to be, and representatives had to be evacuated to their office, uh, to offices and then a secure bunker, which is just scary to think about. I think the important thing when looking at this, and I've seen a lot of this commentary around um, uh, the, you know, the capital building riots, um, is that the, the take is that this is a uniquely US thing, or at least this this type of um, cult of personality really exploding over and, and look and actively turning into political violence. Um, but I think this is a really naive view, and it, it's primarily coming from from Western Europe. Um, and, and as a show where we talk about um, the world, um, it's very mm-hmm. important to look at that this isn't a uniquely American thing. We have to think about the fact that, uh, you know, le- um, more than four years ago, um, Joe Cox, a Labour Party MP in the UK, was assassinated by a, a you know a, a far right 
terrorist. Um, same goes to um, a, a, um, a Walter uh, Lubke in, in Germany, a, a local politician um, there. He was assassinated by a neo-Nazi as well. Plots against politicians is not a unique thing in Western Europe. Um, and and it, it's being seen from the far right as well as Islamist terrorists and a variety of different groups. But it seems to be a uniquely fascist thing for those who have actively succeeded in those goals. Um, and as I said, I don't I don't think it, it's something where we should say this is something that can't affect us or there's something that won't affect us because it's it's built into our um, to a lot of our, our country's um, narratives. For, so, for example. Um, in the media environments of countries like Italy um, or France, you have very large um, outlets, um, primarily online, that promote an alternate um, view, a, a far-right one, and that peddles a lot of misinformation and fake news and conspiracy theories, uh, like the Great Replacement um, and other such. Um, that means that they, they're able to promote themselves further. Um, and. and Ultimately, they would actively engage in the type of violence, misinformation that we've seen that we've seen Trump supporters um, who who engaged in these riots, you know, actively participate in. It, it's it's very concerning that a lot of the the actual conversations around what happened in the U.S. isn't internal reflection going. What has happened here? How can we ensure that that doesn't happen to us? It's more oh, we're above the United States, um, which I, I I don't think is the case at all. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, having seen a lot of commentary from people, you know, basically, you know, chastising the U.S. for this, and it's fair, look, the U.S., you know, is an experiment that has lasted so many centuries uh, on this. I think too many people don't realize that, you know, democracy in any country is very fragile, uh, regardless of how strong your institutions may be, uh, you know, democracy can crack. And we've seen that throughout, you know, you, you know, the history of the world, that plenty of countries that were democracies at one point broke up and it's not, you know, just a uniquely American thing or anything. And I think to your point, yes, it's also an issue in other parts of the world. And I think the other candid reality is you had certain individuals uh, who went around saying, you know, uh, you know, they could, you know, change the results of this, you know, election on that certification day, which they, which they couldn't, there were no votes for that um, in riding it up. And, uh, you know, as someone who's an American, it's very disgusting to see that, uh, you know, uh, you know, an event, you know, such as that, which is sacred, was, you know, ransacked. Yeah, I'd say just one final thing, um, which is the main one, is trust in elections. And mm -hmm. specifically when I talk about, I, I'm referring more to this idea of election fraud. And yes. um, the conspiracies around it aren't a unique thing. It existed, obviously, Donald Trump himself engaged in it even when he won in 2016. Um, but in, for example, the Austrian presidential elections um, in 2018, Swedish parliamentary elections, um, far-right figures propped up this idea that there was electoral fraud. Mm -hmm. um, and even looking uh, to, to my own country, the United Kingdom, um, in the uh, Peaceborough by-election, which I believe was, was that 2019, I believe? Yes. Um, there was uh, Nigel Farage pushed allegations of electoral fraud by um, postal ballots. Um, and, and, and that has really been a, a main staking or striking point um, by these figures who want to try and sow, um, I guess, distrust in election validity um, is going after postal votes and that kind of thing. And it will only really be expanded by the way that Trump engaged in it. So I definitely think it's something we need to be vigilant about. 
um, and and definitely try and engage and stay away from those discourses about trying to actively undermine elections without any confirmed evidence to to what they're trying to push. Yeah, and I think on the point of the U.S. look, I mean, you know, one can say whatever you know opinion about the election was, but the election was over on the 14th when the Supreme Court ruled in two cases. It was done. There was nothing to investigate, and the president should have, in the grace of the office, conceded uh, uh, in that way and moved on. But obviously, Donald Trump is not that type of person to concede. Um, and of course, we are now here, and uh, you know, uh, you know, Joe Biden um, it should be known. I'm no fan of his. Uh, has a long road ahead to try to convince the country to unite and. Uh, if he succeeds in that, he will obviously do a significant of a good of a job. If he doesn't, then you know the deterioration in the U.S. of uh, political stability will just continue to get worse. But you, you could argue that America has become such a polarized um, country, and even looking at the polling results for yes. uh, obviously it's polling, but but for um, who people blame for these these um, riots okay. or what people would call these rioters. I think it was about 15% in a, I believe it was a YouGov poll, said they were patriots. And mm -hmm. you have to think when, you know, obviously it's a poll, so all of the caveats that come with that, but a fair substantial amount of your country believes um, sure. that these people who, I would argue with yourself that yeah, they are they are domestic terrorists, mm -hmm. um, are, are patriots. That is something that is incredibly hard to try and recover from. Well, yes. um, so it, it actively goes to this case where if you have someone who doesn't engage and loses consent, where the whole point of a democracy is is that both sides, if you know, when it comes down to the results at the end of the day, acknowledge who won and who lost. Mm -hmm. um, if you lose that in such a polarized um, country, then yeah, it's almost irreversible because they already believe Joe Biden stole it so i don't believe yes. he'll ever really be able to convince them that he is truly legitimate yes i do and that is a fair point i just think again i i, I know a lot of people have been writing america's obituary in these uh, you know last few days saying it's over the experiment is done and, and it could be the case but i will say america if its history is to be repeated has had many moments of darkness and we've survived um it's just you know again you know having to find you know appropriate middle ground. And I think, you know, there is a criticism to be made here at the media for fueling the flames for the last few decades of uh, pushing people to polar extremes and uh, pushing a lot of individuals to do things that are just reprehensible. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. But just as a final um, note on this this general topic, um, we, we have to sort of, I guess, come to the conclusion of, of is there... We always talk about G, like, um, sorry, not GB News, Donald Trump News, the new, the the Donald Trump News Network that's going to come mm -hmm. after, um, and and likely will. Um, do we? I mean, do you still think that, given the events um, and almost the incitement um, of of you know these these supporters and trying to get them riled up to the extent where they they do go to these extreme actions, do you think that these sort of um, things will push him far too out of the mainstream where he won't be able to to engage in an active media base? Or do you think that he has such a significant level of support that will just never die away, that that he will still have a significant hold over the United States after he's after he's left office? Um, I think that depends. I think there's two points on that topic. I think first someone made a good post about this, Patrick Grafani, uh, made a good point. Um, but a lot of the reason why Trump is what it is is the media, when he ran in 2015-16, gave him a lot of free airtime. Uh, his rallies were covered. 
he was being interviewed on everything. So I think that's the first thing. How does the media deal with opposed President Trump? Do they still cover him 24-7? Do they sort of remove him from the spotlight? Do they just occasionally mention him? I think that's one issue um, to look for. And I think the second thing is what happens with social media. I mean, Twitter has been, Twitter and other social media outlets have been going after him very hard in the last few days. Uh, and some have argued that uh, come the 20th, Twitter may permanently ban him in other social media sites. So uh, I think it probably depends on what your uh, his reach is uh, with that. Do I think he could win the Republican primary in 2024? Sadly, yes. But again, that probably depends, of course, uh, how the next four years go. I'm of the view that these weeks event, this week's events you know, have helped a certain governor in Florida, Ron DeSantis' 2024 profile, but it remains to be seen if, you know, he does run in four years' time or whether he just, you know, doesn't and sits on the sidelines and others, you know, run for that. Like uh, Senator Hawley, who has gotten into a lot of hot water for, you know, doing this, you know, you know, the challenging of states, with some arguing that he's only doing this for 2024 purposes. Yeah, and, and that's definitely an interesting perspective and, and really to see if the long-term legacy of an event like this does go to the extent where, you know, people look back and go, this was wrong, or if mm -hmm. it continues to be a situation where they look back and go, you know, this this is a highly polarizing event, which it really mm -hmm. shouldn't be because yeah. it is, uh, as you say, domestic terrorism, but like, Wait, there we are. And 535 members of the United States government were put in danger because of a security thing. And I mean, it's sad to say that, you know, uh, the grounds around the Capitol are sadly going to probably have to be fenced up for the t for the remainder of human time because of one's horrific event. One final thing I want to ask you about before I think we can move on is um, Donald Trump has said he's not going to attend um, the inauguration of, of Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. What are your takes on that? Well, I think it's ridiculous. You should attend. I think it's tradition. It sets a bad precedent. Uh, I think you lose. You should attend with grace. Um, you know, I think... You know, whatever your criticisms are of Mike Pence, and people, you know, have a lot of them. Uh, you know, Pence has, you know, done the noble thing and correcting by attending the inauguration uh, and signifying the peaceful transition of power, uh, and at least in one aspect of it. So I think it's a very incorrect decision on his part. He should attend. Uh, I mean, one of the images of inaugurations have always been the outgoing and incoming presidents, you know, walking beside each other uh, up that ramp to the, you know, inauguration ground. Okay, fantastic. So well, I say fantastic. I mean, in terms of like, fantastic. Thank you for your contribution. You know, no, anyway. it is an opinion show. It's fine. Um, <laughs> anyway. anyway, so I, I can I can lead on this next one. Yes. Um, finally, and I say finally because it's gone on for oh, about five years now. Or see, it feels like five years. Mm -hmm. Brexit has come to an end. The transition <laughs> period has finally ended. Mm -hmm. So. Peter, do you want to go over what's changed? What are the yeah. implications? So uh, I, I know many of you are going to ask, why are we covering this on January 8th? We would have covered this if we were all, had a show on Christmas Day, but of course, none, you know, we enjoy our holidays enough. Uh, so this is the deal the UK and the EU struck uh, on Christmas Eve of you know, 2020. Uh, this was the deal that had been rumored that was going to happen, not going to happen, and they struck a deal. Uh, this deal now puts the UK and the EU in a free trade uh, zone with, you know, numerous new uh, rules uh, put in place. Uh, the UK itself will be subject to more, uh, will be subject to EU regulations, you know, inevitably, inevitably into regulatory alignment, even if the UK government tries to deny this. Uh, it also will not have to do customs checks, as would EU products. Uh, and also, you know, the fisheries thing, uh, 
I believe, and you may you know, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the new quote is the EU can have 25% of fish in British waters. Uh, uh, and uh, that for five years until that has to be worked around. Um, I mean, they struck a deal. Uh, they left on a deal. So, I mean, it helped both economies uh, because both are interdependent on each other. And uh, uh, it now means that, you know, uh, the very dangerous thing about no deal Brexit is no longer something we have to worry about. And in that regard, uh, the, you know, controversial internal market bill uh, that was passed, yeah, those provisions are also gone now. So, no, you know, the Republic and the, and the Northern Ireland will be very much a seamless border. Yes. Um uh, as you said, this is an incredibly important thing for their economies and ensuring that, you know, um, things will stay relatively similar. But there are some very important changes. Yeah. For example, services will, and um, British access to your EU markets will face greater restrictions and lose the advantages that they currently face by, for example, automatic um, right to access said markets. Um, and then it, it goes further to some sort of more minor things like um, the automatic recognition of professional qualities qualifications will also go um you know uh, the uk will uh, also you know a, a good thing uh, for, for many brexiteers is that they've left the european court of justice um but will still be subject to an independent tribunal um if there are any result if there are any issues that come up between mm -hmm. the eu and uk um and then also in terms of some other very consequential things is that the uk has lost out on participation in erasmus plus um and for a lot of people um, this may not seem to be the most significant thing, but but mm. for me and myself as a, a student, uh, but for also um, those who um, who want to work in um, the EU or engage in apprenticeships in the EU or the thousands of projects um, that are funded by Erasmus uh, money that that's that's going and um, is being replaced instead by a primarily university oriented scheme mm. um, called Turing the Turing scheme which will try and promote um, student access to universities across the world rather than specifically the EU. Um, but yeah, so there, there are quite a few changes um, as we've highlighted. Um, I strongly recommend if anybody's interested just to, to go through and, and read it themselves, come to their own conclusions on whether they think this is a good deal or a bad mm -hmm. deal. Um, I have my own opinions, but in and what reality, are your opinions on that, that deal, if I may ask? I think that um, if we're looking at the perspective of, of if it was a if it's a good deal or a bad deal and just if there was a deal or not i think it's a bad deal um but from the other side of it um i'm glad um no deal brexit isn't happening because that would be mm -hmm. far far worse than mm -hmm. than anything this this deal presents i still i still think the uk's economy will be at risk because of how um service or how heavily service aligned it is um, and the ease of access to European markets will pose a significant issue there. But in terms of goods, I'm glad that they will face um, uh, no tariffs and no quotas. Mm -hmm. I mean, my opinion on the deal, obviously, as an outsider, is it's a you know, decent deal. I think my view is it's the best deal the UK government could get with its demands it was asking, that uh, the EU, EU was willing to give up. Uh, there's an argument to be made that some that, you know, uh, the membership was better, uh, the EFTA was better. I mean, uh, you know, that will be in everyone's conclusions. But I mean, I mean, it was the best deal Britain could get on the principles of leaving uh, on the 31st uh, with what it wanted. Uh, and, you know, the UK will have its own world and the remaining 27 uh, will, you know, deal on their own. End. And I think, you know, this, you know, long, awkward relationship will move on. And uh, I think, you know, in terms of other programs, it remains to be seen, of course, conceivably in the future, a Labour government could renegotiate this deal and push for further integration into Europe if they'd like to, uh, but it remains to be seen. Of course, uh, 
you know, the issue for now is dumb, dumbled down, but it could very much, you know, in a renegotiation period come back to life. But I think it's the best deal uh, in terms of what the UK government was requesting. Yeah, I'd say on the case of Labour's um, position mm -hmm. at the moment, they've said that they won't touch it at all. They're not going into um, the next general election. They won't be yep. talking about it at all. They'll just be mm -hmm. leaving it. And I can't, to be honest, I can't imagine them doing that really. Um, because what we're looking at um, here is a situation in which um, uh, Keir Starmer, um, the Labour leader, doesn't want to upset um, any potential um Brexit voting, um, mm -hmm. former Labour voters who went Tory in 2019. Yeah, and, and they're hoping to bring them back by simply saying, here mm -hmm. we go. Um, I, I hope that we won't touch this. We're going to focus on the economy and the NHS instead, and mm -hmm. we'll leave this. Um, who knows how it will be in future general elections? I imagine afterwards, if the economy is still sort of um, being damaged by, you know, maybe service access or, or you know, I don't know, greater restrictions or the desire to align more with Europe, all of that will come up later on. But I don't really see it being a major thing in 2024. Yeah, I, I agree. I think neither. So I don't think Brexit is going to be something Labour wants to talk about, especially uh, considering the fact that their best issue polling wise is health. And that may be very well their better benefit for them to talk about. But we shall wait and see. Uh, moving on to our next issue here is the a uh, Saudi-Qatar deal that was struck over the last week uh, by Jared Kushner, uh, the president's son-in-law, uh, who has become very much known in the Middle East as the you know, signer of deals involving Arab countries. Uh, I'll let Adam explain what has happened in this agreement and why we're, this agreement had to be reached. So I'll take first uh, looking at the context here. So in 2017, a dispute arose between Saudi Arabia and, and Qatar uh, that resulted in diplomatic relations being severed uh, and banned Qatar, registrated planes and ships utilizing Saudi, United Arab Emirates, Bahrain and Egyptian airspace and sea routes, while also blocking Qatar's only land crossing, uh, that being with Saudi Arabia. So why did this dispute come about? Well, the Saudi-led um, coalition cited Qatar's accused, uh, sorry, um, accused um, Qatar of backing um, Iran's ambitions in the region, um, as well as supporting Islamist groups um, like the Muslim Brotherhood, um, which many monarchs in the Middle East see as being their greatest threat beyond Iran. Um, it's sort of this idea of um, political Islam that could incite mass revolt against uh, the monarchy and the poor conditions um, that could be, um, or the actual realization of the poor conditions that people are in if they take up more political engagement. So for them, that is a, a major threat and the accusation follows there that they, they that Qatar was supporting them. Um, so Turkey's warming as, um, to Qatar as well was seen as, as being, um, you know, Qatar giving too much power um, to someone else that wasn't Gulf states. Um, and so that too was seen as a reason um, for what would be a embargo that formed. Um, and there were a set of demands levied against Qatar um, that if they met, they would eventually be able to have their, the embargo ended, um, such as the closing of Al Jazeera, the, the, uh, the media, um, a sort of empire, I guess, that um, is operated by their government, um, closing the Turkish military base in Qatar, cutting diplomatic relations with Iran, except for trade and commerce that complied with um, international sanctions and some other key things. Um, however, as, as Peter has set up now, that the news now is that diplomatic relations have been restored between Qatar and Arab states. Land, air and sea borders are being reopened. But I think the interesting thing to hear here is to really look at what did Saudi Arabia win out of this quite significantly long 
um, at least for um, for this kind of, of major embargo um, diplomatic crisis. And to be honest, it didn't actually get that much in the end. Qatar is closer now to Turkey than ever before. Their role as an independent mediator in the in the region um, has, has actually been emphasized now that the the Gulf states have pushed away from them. And Al Jazeera, as we can, as some of you may know, is certainly still around. Um, so yeah, they didn't really get anything out of it. And now with this deal, they still haven't. Um, Peter, do you have any thoughts on the, the deal itself? And yeah. Oh yeah. Go ahead. I mean, the deal itself isn't again, terrible, you know, in terms of getting regional stress done. I mean, it was negotiated by, you know, Mohammed bin Salman and uh, Qatar Sheikh Tamid bin Ahmed, uh, Jared Kushner. But I mean, look, I agree with most of your points. I mean, still at the end, it doesn't really change anything much. I mean, sure, Qatar and Saudi Arabia are now, you know, on normalized relationships, but Qatar remains, you know, more aligned with Turkey. It still has its open relationship with Iran. Uh, that hasn't changed. Um, Saudi's, you know, displeasure at the Qataris doesn't change. Uh, the only benefit, if anything, is it just makes the U.S.'s life a little bit in the region a little easier, uh, you know, in terms of dealing with regional cooperation, since we'll have the Qataris and the Saudis at least on more traditional grounds of, you know, not uh, blockading that. And look, you know, I'm of the view Al Jazeera is a very, you know, is a network that doesn't have very good things attached to it due to its connections with Islamist terrorist groups and Qatar's connections with those groups. But... In terms of it, look, Jared Kushner negotiated a soft diplomatic deal, and credit be given to him. I mean, whatever you think of, the, of you know, the outgoing administration's foreign policy, Jared Kushner was very good at striking these small deals that had, you know, small impacts or big impacts. I mean, it's a okay deal for, uh, in terms of Saudi equatorial relations and the American interest, but I don't really see any, you know, grandness in this. I just think it's a normalized, you know, peace, you know, Middle Eastern peace, you know, uh, helicopter diplomacy. Yeah, and, and as I said, I'd argue it's a bad thing for Saudi Arabia because they went yeah. through this three-year uh, three stage of posturing about how um, Qatar should engage with their demands, and ultimately they haven't met any of them. Yeah. Saudi's Arabia's um, demands, if anything, none, you know, at the end of the day actually came to fruition. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so going on from that um, is something very, very different. And we're going back once again to Hong Kong, where the continual authoritarian um, I guess, cloud that has been forming over it is continually um, growing and growing and, and enveloping um, the city. So um, with this specifically, the Hong Kong government has arrested 53 pro-democracy activists, politicians and organizers on counts of subversion under the national security law that was imposed on Hong Kong last year. These 53 arrests uh, targeted those who organized and stood in the pro-democracy primaries that were to select the candidates for the Hong Kong legislative elections. Um, this list included some pretty serious uh, political fig figures, such as Claudia Mo, um, a member of the uh, Legislative Council for eight years, but also newcomers to the political scene, uh, such as Lee uh, Chi Young, who is a disability human rights activist. So as you can tell from that sort of brief description of the two types, these aren't really your typical ideas of quote unquote subversive figures, uh, but to the Chinese Communist Party, anybody who even espouses democratic ideals are um, the main reason behind these arrests from Hong Kong authorities' perspective was that anyone who wanted to hold a majority in the Legislative Council via this pro-democracy um, uh, you know, activism um, could stop the executive's power as a means of extracting democratic reform concessions. Um, so, for example, the budget could have been stopped because um, the legislature, which to, uh, to the, the Hong Kong government would 
could have possibly have gained a, a pro-democracy's majority, um, they could have used that to try and enact, you know, any kind of, of democratic reform that you could mm -hmm. think of. Um, but as you can see, um, this really just proves their point that democratic reform is needed, um, in which every single candidate who stood in the pro-democracy protest, who either hadn't been arrested already or hadn't fled Hong Kong, was arrested. And, and that, that I just can't stress enough how serious that is for the implications. You have serious, um, you know, brain power um, and and activist um, knowledge that is in this collective group of people that has just been completely seized um, from um, the Hong Kong people, uh, and any kind of infrastructure that they have has been cut off as well because the the, the Chinese government um, and the Hong Kong government have frozen assets of not only this group. Um, but also an organization that does polling for the pro-democracy uh, um, aligned group, but it is more independent. Um, they themselves have had seen their offices raided um, and, and all their assets seized. So yeah, this is this is very serious. Um, just to add on finally, all but one of these um, candidates has been released on bail, uh, but as a condition of this, they have to give up their passports. So in reality, there's no real way of them fleeing what ultimately is going to be a very serious fate, um, a, a very concerning one um, in which their safety is in no way guaranteed. And the fact that they'll remain on Hong, Hong Kong is not guaranteed at all. There is the po strong possibility that they could face um, incredibly harsh conditions um, on the mainland in, uh, in China. Yeah, I mean, what's happening in China especially with Hong Kong, you know, the continuation of a degradation of a individual liberty and freedom is a very sad, as you, as I mentioned here, reality of what Hong Kong has slowly, you know, drifted to uh, since the handover from Britain. Um, it's gone from a staple gun of arguably, you know, neoliberalism to the horror of uh, totalitarianism. Um, you know, you know, for, you know, these, you know, protesters who many of whom had stuck around thinking, you know, they could hold on, you know, a, been bashed. I mean, the elections last year that looked like, you know, there were a repudiation of a, the mainland. Also, a lot of those people elected have been, you know, slowly but surely removed or squeezed out of power. Um, uh, and it's just a very sad occasion what's happening in Hong Kong. Um, you know, especially on these arrests, it's the Chinese government, uh, you know, uh, continuing its uh, grip uh, on Hong Kong that continues to get tighter and tighter to the point where now it's free to say uh, that Hong Kong is now an official member of the People's Republic of China, and there is no, you know, one country, two systems approach. That is long dead. Yeah, I, I entirely agree. And we're at the situation now where there is no going back, yeah. um, or at least I, I believe that. As I said, the actual um, intellectual brain power behind these movements is gone. Um, these are great orators who are able to inspire millions of people to come out to the streets. They're gone. Um, and the actual, you know, very draconian restrictions that have been applied upon Hong Kong because of the coronavirus is also doubled as a means of ensuring that nobody can protest. Um, and during this very critical phase where people um, need to express their voice, they're being stopped by threat of very harsh punishment. Um, and the final thing I'd like to say is that the the, the, the reason they're arrested, they say, is subversion. Um, and, and as I've already gone over, this idea that subversion is just getting elected and winning a majority is just, you know, it's incredible to think that, I guess, looking back at it now, it makes people feel 
quite not naive in the sense that they they ever believed that the actual Chinese government um, ever would have let Hong Kong get a pro democracy majority. It looks very performative for the accounts, you know, the the leg- uh, sorry the local elections by letting them win a majority there, having that you know that ability of hope, and then in mere months, China. Um, the Chinese government has, has sweeped in and changed the, the 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 you know the landscape of Hong Kong entirely. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, China's deception to the West that it actually valued Hong Kong's political independence has been one of the greatest coups in terms of a uh, you know miss you know getting perceptions you know you know altered from reality and. You know, they've now pretty much said, yeah, no, we're, we're going to take control of Hong Kong. It's now Chinese territory, uh, and it's fully integrated the same way Macau, uh, when it was handed over from Portugal, was expected to still have some individual you know, differences. That's not even a thing anymore. It's just, you know, a part of the mainland straightforward. Like. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, and I think that we're, we're almost getting to the situation now of going, how worse can it get? Because yeah. it already is very bad. What could... Um, the the Chinese Communist Party impose possibly impose next, and really, what is the role um, that the international community takes with trying to to um, to you know take a stand with Hong Kong? Because mm-hmm. despite the very many statements that have been released and the um, condemnations, yeah, condemnations, and also the actual incentives to be able to speed up immigration um, for um, for these uh, people mm-hmm. fleeing from Hong Kong. Um, it doesn't really seem to be taking effect quick enough, at least in the UK, where I don't even think it's set up properly yet. Yeah, no, it has um, I, mean, I, I Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, 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 no it's fine. It's I, I was going to say, yeah, I, I, I don't think, yeah, so as I said, I don't think it's even been set up yet. And it's it's far too late at this stage, or at least in my opinion, because any of the, the actual key people, um, these activists who, you know, may not have even been mainstream, um, who were just people who had, you know, wanted to stand in the pro-democracy protest, because, sorry, in the primaries, because they really want to see their, their, um, their, you know, city change, are being, you know, condemned to a fate um, where they have no idea what's going to happen. So, yeah, a, a lot, I feel like a, a lot of what has been done by the West and the wider world simply hasn't been enough. And we're at this stage now where it's almost impossible to go back and, mm. and make any changes that would, would really relieve the situation. Yeah, I mean, uh, just to add a final point, I mean, you know, we've seen governments condemn this, but then last week we saw the EU sign an investment agreement with the People's Republic of China, uh, yeah. you know, when condemning them for months about how they're this and that, and they signed an agreement. So it's just, you know, at times pure hypocrisy. We're seeing or pure just disengagement from Western governments about, you know, uh, the Chinese thing and then signing agreements, which is really disingenuous to a lot of the cause that a lot of these people in Hong Kong have had had to go for it because at the end of the day, uh, certain countries are still uh, taking in that Chinese commerce because it's, you know, profitable. Exactly. And and that, yeah, that is definitely the, the key takeaway is that it's, it was just a lot of words and no action. Yeah. Um, but I think on that final note, uh, we will move on to, I believe, what is our last topic um, yeah. for today, which um, is it? we go to Ghana. Um, mm-hmm. Africa isn't an area we really touch much, um, but I think with this new year, it's an area we need to, to try and look at at least once a week. Yes. Um, so as discussed a few weeks back, um, the new parliament in Ghana um, is essentially split down um, the middle with a tiny, tiny majority for the new patriotic party, which is a centre-right aligned party, one of the few stable democracies um, in Western Africa. 
So it ended up being 137 for the New Patriotic Party um, and 137 for the opposition National Democratic Congress. Um, when we last discussed this, the government uh, was set to hold the support of that um, a one independent who also ran um, and, and ended up winning, um, who was a former MPP candidate. Um, but I'll, but there's something quite interesting that's happened, but I'll get to that in a sec. Anyway, so um, beyond the implications of this incredibly divided legislature, uh, which will make passing relief legislation in response to the devastation of uh, COVID-19 on the global economy, um, has also created um, very physical tensions that have been flaring. So um, I'm referring to fights that erupted after a governing party um, MP from the New Patriotic Party tried to seize the ballot box during the vote for the parliamentary speaker. Um, so this was a fight that lasted hours and was broken up by military intervention um, and was televised. The entire thing for, for those hours <laughs> was shown on for everyone to see in the country. Um, but the fascinating bit at the edge of this was an opposition MP was the one who won that speaker vote. So despite the fact that there was this um, independent candidate, I believe he ended up voting for the opposition. Um, despite previous um, words to, that he said he was going to support um, the, the, the ruling party. Um, so it ended up being a vote of 138 to 136, with one MP failing to vote. So this is the first time um, in Ghana's history that the Speaker of the Parliament was not selected from the governing party. So what we've seen um, come out of this very um, tight um, election uh, campaign in Ghana and, and the results um, is, is definitely set to be a fascinating um, split between the new um, Patriotic Party's president, who won by a very narrow margin, and then the legislature, which is being probably not the most controlled by uh, this new um, opposition speaker of the parliament and it will be a very tenuous relationship but to be fair it will be interesting beyond this obviously um you know sad implication for democracy where mps are engaging in active fights with one another because they're not getting their way there is also the hope that with this um divided you know, with an executive and legislature that is divided, there is just the the simple hope, again, with a very divided legislature, that it means that more of the country or these representatives will have to come together um, and engage and seek out compromises that, that suit um, both camps for the best. Um, but as we know, with some countries, um, this can be a very difficult situation um, and, and probably even leads to even more polarization. But will definitely be an interesting case to watch um, because, yeah, um, Ghana's, um, you know, uh, position as a stable democracy um, has sort of been threatened recently with this, um, with allegations of fraud having taken place in the election, um, but it wasn't too widespread. So yeah. there, there is, um, there is the hope from um, international um, representatives who came to observe the election. They noted there were some minor things, but as a whole, it was conducted fairly. Um, so there is obviously the hope in the future that this will continue and Ghana will sustain itself as a, a very stable um, democracy. Yeah, I mean, I, I fully agree with what you said. I think also the fact that Ghana has been a very much, a, you know, a beacon of uh, some light in West Africa, which is, you know, notorious for, you know, failed democratic experiments. Um, and, you know, look, this independent has shown he has a bit of a streaky uh, manner in terms of how he will, you know, use his conscience. So it's at least impressive to see that. And, uh, uh, you know, the, 
you know, the legislature uh, in typical session, you know, it's some, you know, fun fisticuffs, which is, you know, uh, intriguing to see. Uh, but no, I mean, it's interesting to see there are the allegations of fraud uh, that have happened with the legislative and presidential election, but for the most part, they, they don't seem widespread and just seems like one person just a little angry at what little result. Um, and uh, again, Ghana uh, hopefully continues its good progress, um, you know, with the legislature being uh, so, you know, right down the middle, uh, the 50-50 almost, like the Senate in the U.S. Uh, will be on the 20th. Uh, it's interesting to see, of course, uh, you know, what will be done in negotiations and what, you know, the, the government will do with the opposition in terms of, you know, negotiating packages. But for the most part, I think, you know, uh, you know, it, I think that, you know, Ghana, you know, Ghana has been for a lot in the past to understand what, you know, the, re, you know, the, the seriousness, if, if, if anything, uh, with the president. Yep. And, and I think, you know, just talking about the general thing of looking, looking at Africa, specifically with the world tonight, it's going to be good to try and, and specifically hone in on an area um, mm -hmm. of the world that never gets really touched upon that much. Yeah. Um, and specifically with this parliamentary clash, it's something that got barely any coverage, despite how important it see to really, um, I guess, as a case study to see how divided government works um, elsewhere in the world, because we hear about it a lot with the United States. Um, but Let's see how it plays out um, in, in West Africa. Indeed, and uh, seeing as if we've gotten there, uh, before we go to the loser of the week, we would ask you always to follow us on uh, Lexington Daily's uh, Twitter account. You can find articles uh, submitted by new articles by staff or previous ones, uh, and you can find uh, you know previous episodes of this uh, uh, you know uh, show uh, on on uh, um, on Spotify or podcasts or whatever streaming services you use uh, because of Audible, which, you know, is a great, you know, uh, thing that uh, carries all of these things and whatever uh, service you uh, use. But uh, anyway, uh, or, uh, just as a quick thing, uh, also next week's show, we for certain will be covering the CDU leadership election, which is imminently happening that same weekend, which will be very interesting to see about the uh, future of uh, the CDU and possibly the next chancellor of Germany. And also, I'd like to quickly add, we also have Kazakhstan's legislative election, which I know everyone's just rearing for. Um, I certainly am. Um, so also make sure to, to come um, at, and listen for that. Um, but also on the, uh, it'll be on the 10th of January, uh, follow AsiaLex at AsiaLex on, on Twitter, sorry. because we'll be covering um, that election um, as well. Mm -hmm. But yes, I think we should go straight into the loser of the week now, everyone's favorite time. Uh, Peter, who is your loser of the week? Well, there are a lot of nominations, you know, for this week. Uh, very hard to, you know, bring them down. So I'm just going to go down and uh, I'm going to have to be this person and say the loser of the week for me, and it's kind of, it's not humorous this week, it's the DC police. I mean, D, uh, not DC, the Capitol Police. Uh, for not preparing properly and rejecting military help and FBI help to guard the Capitol because they felt they were in control of things. I mean, come on. I mean, if you knew there were going to be a lot of protesters there, you probably should have asked for some backup. Um, and of course, uh, yeah, I didn't. And uh, we had the horrible tragedy uh, that was, you know, four people dying um, uh, in this, you know, attack. Uh, and we had senators and representatives who had to, you know, for the, you know, almost think that they were in danger of dying, and you know, I mean, we, you know, we we've heard now from the FBI that certain members of the of the of these goons wanted to take the vice president, the speaker, uh, 
and the two Senate leaders are hostage, which is just a horrifying thought to think about. So DC Capitol Police are my loser of the week. They've already, you know, their head has already basically been fired by the speaker who, the, who runs the DC, who is the who is the final arbiter of DC uh, Capitol Police. And uh, very much so that they've already had to put a fence up, which is probably another sad indication of how bad they, you know, have failed. So they are my loser of the week. Okay, so my one... I, it didn't technically happen this week, but it came over the span of when we didn't have a proper show. So I'm going to do it anyway. I wanted to do a bit more of a lighthearted rant at the end. And it was the um, the BBC. Oh, I don't know if it was officially done by the BBC. But anyway, the, the actual uh, New Year's Eve celebration thingy that was aired on TV. I don't know what you call it. Um, but basically, it was a, a very initially a very lovely light show. Uh, fireworks as well. Um, but then it came to what I believe was drones or was done by drones or it was some kind of um, way of projecting um, light um, into the air where it looks back at 2020 um, and, and some of our favorite moments. And my God, was it the cringiest thing I've ever seen? I think that I cannot describe it very well because, again, it was a very visual thing. But I would just recommend everybody to Google, I guess, BBC um, 2020 <laughs> uh, New Year's uh, show. I think that would be the easiest way to find it. Um, and yeah, just watch it because it covered everyone's favorite moments, such as p being put on mute on, on a video call. And I'm sure it was very wholesome to some people, but it just felt like a very loser thing. If you're looking at what the word loser means, it just felt, I felt like a loser watching it. Um, but yeah, anyway, that, that's my loser of the week. Uh, that display, which I think is a bit more lighthearted to try and... Um, yes. I mean, I will say the New Year's coverage with Corona this year was really not very humor, optimist, uh, mind you. I don't really like New Year's Eve coverage for starters, because uh, it's usually uh, kind of, especially in the U.S., way too New York centric. Uh, there was, well, speaking of that, there was somebody, I can't remember the name of the singer, apparently someone famous that I don't know. She was singing the song of New York. I don't know if that's what the name of the song is, or, you know, the song where they, yeah. she, she sings New York multiple times. She was singing that in London. And it just felt, how could you make this any more New York centric in the UK for the BBC's coverage? It was, uh... I mean, it would be something if maybe she removed New York and maybe put London in the song just for a London special song. Uh, I don't think uh, <laughs> Brits want to have to hear about, you know, an American city, you know, across the channel. Oh, uh, yeah. No, that entire, that entire performance, the show, I just, I, I was really tired, even though I was excited about 2021, how naive I was being excited <laughs> for this year. Um, uh, you know, I, I, it wasn't great. I, I mean, I think just like before we like round off the show, um, because I know that, an you know, a date is an arbitrary line. Changing to a new year is, yeah, arbitrary. It's not going to change anything in reality. But there was this genuine sense of hope. And I don't think I was the only one who held it that, um, you know, things were going to get better. And then just a few days later, um, it seemed like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and then it felt like Washington DC was, was, was basically on fire. So there we are. Yes. Uh, fun world we live in. Uh, anyway, before we wrap up the show, I'll ask you, Adam, as a follower of European politics, what is your prediction for the CDU consciousness? That's obviously may not, uh, be on the thing. Do you have a, 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 a view of who may win it? Oh, right. Okay. Um, 
I will be honest and say that I haven't been paying most attention um, to this uh, specifically. However, my very, like, you know, I think it will be easy to ask what you think. Um, and then I, <laughs> while I quickly try and remember, I have it written down somewhere um, in preparation. Yeah, no, uh, just because we have time, I will ask it. And then, uh, you know, in two weeks' time, we can see who was and who was wrong. Uh, my prediction uh, is, and I, you know, if I get this wrong, someone can please throw crow at me. I think. Uh, Frederick Matz will be the next leader of the CDD. Okay, um, fair enough. Um, just looking at my notes, I had, is it Lashet? Yeah, Lashet. Lash yeah, I don't, again, I have no idea why I put that. I must have seen it in the Europe Alex group chat, which I'm a member of. I don't, to be honest, I know it may sound like a bit of a sin for a European um, politics follower. I don't really care about Germany too much. Um, <laughs> I genuinely don't. <laughs> He's the typical Brit. <laughs> Yeah, well, here's the thing. I care about countries where I can align myself politically. Um, so, for example, I love French politics. I think that, you know, I can I could find a place to easily align myself. I love Estonian politics. That's fascinating as well. But with Germany, I, you know, I wouldn't, I would probably, to be honest, I'd probably end up voting CDU, but not feel like ideologically aligned because mm -hmm. I cannot stand um, the the FDP. So, yeah, yeah. There, there's, there's my um reasoning behind it uh, why i don't actually pay that much attention so take yeah. my prediction with uh, um mainly how i respond to most elections and i just guess no and problem. hope i'm right no problem at all uh since i see we're out of time and we we can end the show early today i want to thank you all for watching uh it's always a pleasure to have you know a lovely audience uh watch the show uh and uh as noted, we cannot wait to see you next week when we talk about the CDU in Kazakhstan and probably a lot more. Yeah. I definitely will read up more on the CDU election than I have right now. Indeed, mm -hmm. and uh, from all of us here at The World Tonight, have a great rest of your day. Stay safe and have a good night. Good night. <laughs>